you very much appreciate the introduction and all the hospitality. Is this thing on? I sure hope it isn't. Uh, I need to speak into it. Okay, yeah. that's okay. I didn't realize that. See if I can get it higher. That's okay. I'm getting shorter. Actually. It's, it's really long enough. That my, that's good. Enough. That's yeah. scary. Yeah. I ignore it. I may ignore it. So you call your. But when you ignore it, I'm doing. Ignore the audience or ignore no. the mic? Oh. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate the hospitality of everyone who's made uh, my trip here possible. Nobody can hear me. Uh, that's good. Uh, especially uh, Dr. Stu Halpern. Uh, my topic tonight is called uh, Abraham and the Absoluteness of God, and everybody should have this handout. Uh, so you can see the text we're talking about. Maybe there's still some more of them out there. Uh, and I'm going to start where the Bible really starts talking about Abraham, which is with this text one. Uh, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your native land. This is Parshat Lefaka. Go forth from your native land, from your kin group, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and curse him who curses you. And all the families of the earth, big translation problem here, here rendered shall bless themselves by you. So here we have the, uh, the way Abraham is effectively introduced. All we know from the previous verses to this, the couple of verses before, is that Abraham, uh, we know his genealogy, uh, we know his father's name, his grandfather's name, and so on and so on, all the way back to Adam eventually. And uh, we know that his wife is barren, his wife is infertile. But here he's promised that he's going to become a great nation. Uh, and uh, this makes this is an interesting question. How is he going to be the father of a great nation if he isn't the father of anybody? Uh, you know, they say that infertility is uh, inherited. If your parents didn't have any children, you won't either. <laughs> Actually, in my family, we had six successive generations of infertility. <laughs> but we, we lasted out, uh, we persevered and, and overcame that. I'm here uh, as evidence for that. Elevens is a very tough people. At least the ones that spell with an E with an I. Uh, so Abraham is the father of nobody. He's promising to be the father of a great nation. And that reminds me of the case of the uh, Jew that got on the bus. I think it was right here in New York City. And he sat down next to the Catholic priest. And the Catholic priest was wearing the Roman collar. He hadn't kicked the habit. <laughs> and the, uh, the Jew said to him, Pardon me, sir. Uh, are you aware that you're wearing your shirt backwards? And the priest says, No, no, no. I, I'm a father. And the Jew says, well, I'm a father too. I don't wear my shirt backwards. <laughs> and the priest says, no, 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 I, I'm a father to thousands. And the Jew says, in that case, leave your shirt the way it is and put your pants on backwards. <laughs> now the point is, the point is, the way the story introduces Abraham, the way the story introduces Abraham, he's going to be the father of a great nation, but he's not the father of anybody. His wife is infertile, and she's not getting any younger. I mean, it's kind of a little mixed up in the biblical story. Is it from infertility or old age? But at a certain point, uh, those two things uh, converge. Okay. Uh, in the book of Genesis, Abraham is primarily this figure of father. He is a primarily a figure who has been promised descendants. And the great question is, how would that highly unlikely promise ever, ever be realized? This highly irrational uh, promise... How will this, this man ever have a child when his wife is barren and, and uh, too old to have a child anyway? And the great threat then is the loss of the child. 
the great threat in Genesis in general is, is that the line that's been promised will be terminated because the child will die, the child will be lost, the family will be broken, uh, whatever. Uh, that, is a kind of, that is the social anthropological framework of the book of Genesis, a familial intergenerational promise which is continually being endangered through family discord, but especially through threats to the life of the heir, or even the threat that the heir will, in fact, uh, uh, himself not have an heir that Abraham, uh, who's been given this promise, will not have a son. That the next generation, Isaac, will have a wife, Rebecca, who according to the Torah is herself barren for 20 years. Or that the next generation, Rachel and Leah, each of them will in fact experience a period of infertility. This is a pattern repeating throughout Genesis. What you don't see in Genesis itself is Abraham as what I call a founder as opposed to a father. You don't see him as a founder of a school of thought, a school of theology, a, a distinctive worldview. It's not to say he's presented as having the same worldview as everybody else, but you don't see him objecting to the religions of the people around him. You don't see him remonstrating with them. You don't see him announcing that what they mean by God is not a real God. What they mean by God, uh, by God is an idol. You don't see him uh, attacking their modes of worship. He doesn't participate with them in worship, but you also don't see him as uh, attacking uh, their modes of worship. Nor do you see them attacking him for his modes of worship. Nor do you see them saying, what is this strange God, as if he's preaching a God. He's not preaching any God. Abraham is not preaching uh, anything in the book of Genesis. Uh, his coming into the promised land, called in the in the uh, Torah called in, uh, in the Pentateuch. Please don't pronounce it Pentateuch. I did want to have a student, this is not a joke, I once had a student who wrote on his, his uh, uh, midterm something, I told him, I, just, I can't read what that says. And he says, it says Elijah the Tushbite. <laughs> uh, so uh, that didn't sit well with me. Uh, but, but <laughs> there are treatments for that. Uh, now the uh, the so the uh, uh, I got off the subject. Uh, the the uh, that that uh, Abraham is not a person at war with the with the nations around him or with his uh, uh, on religious grounds uh, or with the religions around him. Nor are they uh, critiquing him. He comes into the land. He comes into the land which the Torah. That's how I got off the subject uh, before I was so rudely interrupted. Uh, uh, it was uh, Pentateuch uh, he comes in in the Pentateuchal story into what they call the land of Canaan Eretz Canaan uh, they don't call it Eretz Israel Eretz Canaan they come, he comes into Canaan uh, because of this promise that he'll be given a land uh, a land and a nation uh, on which uh, the, the promised nation will live uh, and that's true throughout the whole book of Genesis, which is where 98% of what you find about Abraham is concentrated. But when you get to the book of Joshua, the very end of the book of Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible, you see this in text 2. Then Joshua said to the people, this is Joshua's swan song, so to speak, and kind of a covenant renewal ceremony at the very end of the book of Joshua. Then Joshua said to all the people, Thus said the Lord, the God of Israel, In olden times your forefathers... Terach, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from beyond the Euphrates and led him 
through the whole land of Canaan and multiplied his offspring. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave Esau the hill country of Seir as his possession, while Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, etc., etc. A kind of uh, uh, epitome of the entire story of the Torah of the of the Pentateuch here, beginning with Abraham. But it says, your forefathers, your fathers worshipped Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor. Abraham's father worshipped other gods. So here, when when God takes Abraham out of Mesopotamia into the land of Canaan, he's taking him away from a familial context of worshipping other gods and into uh, a, a, a new context. He, in a sense, is rescuing him from idolatry. And that idea becomes more and more uh, prominent and more and more central as Judaism goes along in Second Temple uh, times and after and into rabbinic literature. By Second Temple times, I'm talking especially about the literature from the second and first century before the common era, the first century into the common era, and then rabbinic literature in the times of the Roman Empire, I don't know, first through fifth, sixth century of the common era and beyond, really. So, for example, text three is from a text called Jubilees. Now, before you go racing through your Tanakh trying to find the book of Jubilees, or before you uh, take it back to the bookstore wanting your money back because it doesn't have Jubilees, Jubilees is not the part of any continuing canon uh, of, of, of Judaism. Uh, Jubilees is from a group that often is labeled as sectarian, but what it meant in around the second century, middle of the second century BCE, what it meant to call a particular group normative and another group sectarian is not at all clear. Each sect thought of itself as normative, and uh, the notion that the sects knew of uh, the norm but for some reason decided uh, willfully to break off from it is not historically very, uh, very accurate. Of course, I always tell my classes that the Jews in Second Temple times were very different from the Jews today. Judaism in Second Temple times was very different from uh, Judaism today because in those days the Jews had a lot more sects than they have today. And here we hear, here we see the account of something you don't find at all in Genesis. Jubilees came, claims to be retelling the story of the Torah from Genesis 1 through Exodus 12, right up about to, just as the Exodus is about to take place. But when it talks about the youth of Abraham here in text 3, it says, And the lad, the lad, meaning young Abraham, began understanding the straying of the land, the idolatry, the false worship, whatever, of the land, that everyone went astray after graven images and after pollution. And he separated, this is something you don't find in Genesis, people worshiping graven images or whatever in the time of Abraham. And he separated from his fathers so that he might not worship the idols with them. Here, before God ever speaks to him, he has already seen through the idols and he has separated himself from those idols already. And he began to pray to the creator of all so that he might save him from the straying of the sons of men and so that his portion might not fall into straying after the pollution and the scorn. So here is Abraham in his youth seeing through these idols, coming to see there's something wrong with those idols, separating from his family. And then he begins to, uh, to protest to his father about uh, this very question of idolatry. He says here at the bottom of text 3, why do you worship those who have no spirit in them? Again, identifying the icon with the God. As if to say when, when you worship the God represented in manifest in the icon, you are simply worshiping the icon. You're worshiping a piece of wood or a piece of stone 
you're not actually worshiping the god. Any Mesopotamian would regard that as a very silly, simplistic caricature of his religion. There were icons, there were statues, and this, but the statues themselves manifested the deity. If the statue was destroyed, it was a time for grief. It was a, it, it was a time for a, a national lamentation and grief. But nobody thought that God per se had died or didn't exist simply because the icon was destroyed. In fact, they're perfectly aware of the fact you could make another icon. Uh, in that sense, uh, I think the closest thing to an icon in, in the sense of classical Mesopotamian religion uh, in Jewish uh, uh, experience, I can think of it's not a perfect analogy, it's not an equation, but the closest thing I would be, say would be something like uh, Sefer Torah. If it falls, if it burns down, if it gets ripped, if someone you know uh, touches it uh, or does something not good to it, uh, that's a time for, uh, for mourning. Uh, it has to be buried. It can't just be thrown out in the dumpster. Uh, it, uh, it has to be treated with a certain amount of respect. It lives in its own little house. If it comes out of its house, everyone stands up. It has crowns on its head. People try to come in contact with it. They try, try to kiss it, but not to kiss it directly. Much of this is very reminiscent of classical Mesopotamian uh, uh, worship. Uh, would you say the same? I could imagine an ancient Mesopotamian might walk into a modern uh, synagogue and say, that Torah scroll, that's your God, right? And I, I know a case where a Torah scroll was burned up in flames and therefore your God doesn't exist anymore, right? And every Jew would say, what are you talking? What is this? Uh, but that's the, that's the nature of this type of polemic. It begins in the Bible itself. For whatever reason, the religion of Israel, which is aniconic, it does not have iconography in its worship, either understands or pretends to understand the other religions that do have icons as regarding the icon as the deity. And the deity has no reality beyond the icon. That's, that, that's, that's how it's presented. That, it's it's uh, a polemic that begins in the prophets. And by the time you get to Jubilee, you have uh, Abraham now espousing this view. He says, why do you worship those that have no spirit in them? Because they are works of the hands and you're carrying them upon your shoulders. And there is no help from them for you, except great shame for those who made them. And the misleading of the heart to those who worship them. Do not worship them. Young Abram says to his father, hey, hey, quick, cut that stuff out. Quit worshiping them. And his father said to him, again in Jubilees here at the top of page 2, I also know that, my son, but what shall I do to the people who have made me minister before them? I've got to serve these icons. If I speak to them in righteousness, they will kill me because their souls cleave to them. They're really attached to this mode of worship. They'll kill me if I speak out against it. Uh, so that they might worship them and praise them. Be silent, my son, lest they kill you. And he told this to two of his brothers, and they were angry with him, and he kept, he kept silent. So here you have Abraham alienated from his family precisely over this issue of idolatry. Now, uh, this story is so familiar to Jews uh, in, in, who had traditional Jewish educations but many people actually think you find it in the book of Genesis when I used to teach undergraduates many uh, years ago I used to uh, love to put on the, the midterm uh, after we would read the book of Genesis uh, actually the midterm of course a whole, uh, an introduction to the Hebrew Bible I used to love to put on there uh, in which book of the Bible do we find the story of Abraham's conflict with his father over idolatry and I would say Genesis Leviticus, Isaiah, Ezra, Proverbs, or none of the above. 
And the kids would have gone to Hebrew school sort of snickered because they knew the answer. Genesis. <laughs> you can tell who went to Hebrew school because they got it wrong. Uh, the, uh, so, uh, but this becomes the, uh, a prominent way in which the tradition comes to think of and remember Abraham. Not simply a biological progenitor, but a person of theological insight who came to see through the materialism, we'll talk a little bit more about materialism later, the materialism of iconography. Uh, and one of the things that goes on in this story, in stories like this, is that it, they make God's promise to Abraham seem less arbitrary. Here's this guy, Abraham. According to the book of Genesis, he's just, he's just a guy. You know his genealogy. He's got two brothers. And actually, you know, God promises him all kinds of great things. He's going to be a great nation, etc., etc. You know, uh, uh, you know, sort of follows the divine voice and comes into the land of Canaan. And God says, you know what? I'll give you this land. Hey, that's good too. Right? But why him? Why not just some other guy in Mesopotamia? Why not any, any old schlep on the streets of, of Babylon? Right? Or, or, or wherever. What's so special? What, what is there about Abraham that makes him deserve this? Gen- in Genesis, there's nothing there, at least initially, to indicate why he uh, deserves this. But if you read it according to this kind of midrash that we see in Jubilees and, and a lot of other Jewish legends we'll look at in a moment, now it changes. Because now it's not just that God makes a promise to Abraham, that God speaks to Abraham, that God chooses Abraham. But before that moment came, Abraham already chose God. Abraham saw through the icons. He saw through the false gods. He made a stand for the true God against the false gods, even in the face of his father and his brothers. He didn't win any friends that way. But in fact, he demonstrated a certain uh, theological, philosophical insight. And that was... And then God, in fact, uh, speaks to him. If you like the notion of God choosing people who don't deserve it, uh, you call it theologically in English, they classically call it grace, a theology of grace. It's, it's divine grace. It's favor, unearned favor. If you don't like it, you call it arbitrariness and say it's unfair. It's unfair. Uh, the, uh, when terrible things happen to us, we tend to say, why me? Why me? Uh, leaving aside the whole question, why anybody? Uh, but uh, when people win the state lottery, you don't see them saying, why me? I didn't do anything different. I just bought a ticket like anybody else. Why me? I don't deserve this. Usually when good things happen to us, we don't think that, well, we're, we're undeserving. It's unfair. It's only when bad things happen to us that we don't deserve them. We say, hey, that's unfair. Here, Abraham's, the, uh, the God's choosing Abraham is presented as something other than pure grace or arbitrariness. There is some rationale in Abraham's prior move towards God. Okay. Uh, it's also speaking of a God who is to some degree discoverable through reason. Uh, we'll talk about that more in a moment, but Abraham comes to God and comes to understand the nature of God without having to hear a voice, without having to have special revelation. He didn't have access to any information his brothers didn't have access to, and yet he moves towards God, and God then chooses him. So it's a more rational theology in that sense. Uh, uh, but as I say, in ancient Israel, from early on, there is this prohibition on iconography. Really on, if you read it, I think, according to its plain sense in, in, in the Decalogue, a prohibition on making any graven images, or any picture, any image, any likeness of anything. Uh, and uh, the... Uh, 
this then generates this polemic I mentioned a moment ago where the god is identified with the icon therefore this anti-iconic this non-iconographic tradition in Israel becomes the basis for uh, attacks on um, the other uh, religions uh, fair uh, or unfair uh, okay um, and text 4 we have uh, another uh, uh, Jewish text from uh, the uh, late second temple period uh, a rather obscure text called the Apocalypse of Abraham observed in Old Church Slavonic you Old Church Slavs will be glad to know and uh, it, it has a, a fascinating account here of Abraham as a child Abraham as a child works for his father who in fact manufactures and sells icons and uh, but in the Apocalypse of Abraham his father does not see through them in Jubilees the father sees through them but doesn't have guts enough to do anything about it he says, I know, I know, my son, but they'll kill me if I come out and say this. In the pockets of Abraham, the father believes in them. And Abraham has these various episodes where, one, where for example, one day he's taking uh, his father's wares to market. The icons are in the cart. He's going over the bridge in the cart. And uh, they hit a rock, and the icon falls, and its head falls off and falls into the river. And, uh, well, this is a big problem. Uh, if you ever tried to sell an icon... If it doesn't have a head, you know, uh, it doesn't it doesn't sell nearly nearly as well. Uh, and uh, but his father says, "Oh, no problem. We'll just make a new one." Well, wait a minute. This is your god. How can you manufacture your god? Now, again, in the context of ancient Mesopotamian religion, that's just a, 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 a silly way to approach it. But nonetheless, this is how the Jews are perceiving the other religion. And Abraham, gradually, because of episodes like this, comes to realize there's nothing to these gods. There's nothing to them. They're false. They're false gods because they're not. They're limited to matter, and the matter is vulnerable to uh, injury and destruction. A wooden icon can burn up. Uh, a stone icon can be smashed to smithereens. It's not a real god. So, it says in text four, and it came to pass as I was thinking these things like these with regard to my father Terah, in the court of my house. The voice of the Mighty One came down from the heavens in a stream of fire, saying and calling, Abraham, Abraham. And I said, Here I am. Obviously influenced by the Akedah by Genesis 22. And he said, this is what God says to Abraham, who has figured out on his own, in his father's household, that these gods are not gods. He said, You are searching for the God of gods, the Creator, in the understanding of your heart. I am he. I am the God that you've been searching for. You've been searching for him in your own process of thought. Now I will engage in an act of personal self-disclosure, personal self-revelation to you. I am he. Go out from Terah, your father, and go out of the house that you too may not be slain in the sins of your father's house. And I went out. And it came to pass as I went out. I was not yet outside the entrance of the court. He's just going out of the courtyard of the house that the sound of a great thunder came and burned him and his house and everything in the house down to the ground 40 cubits. Now this is interesting because here we see reason crowned with revelation or philosophy crowned with a relationship to the personal God who discloses himself to Abraham. You have uh, the, the process of reasoning by which Abraham comes to see through the false gods 
which is then completed in the revelation of the true God, the personal revelation of the true God to, uh, to Abraham. But also you can see in the background of this narrative, a midrash on those words, go forth out of your father's house. In Genesis 12, it almost certainly means a kin group, something maybe uh, larger than a nuclear family and smaller than a tribe. Go forth out of your native land, go forth out of your larger kin group, your moledet, and from your Beit Avicha, from your father's household. In this text 4, he's going out, literally out of his father's house, out of the very structure, so that he'll be saved from the punishment that's coming because of the father's engagement in idolatry. Because God has warned him, get out of your father's house before I destroy it uh, for its idolatry. He leaves his father's house and, uh, and, uh, uh, and survives, and everybody else then uh, dies in that conflagration. Now this type of story becomes very common, as I mentioned, in rabbinic Judaism, and the Judaism of the Talmud and Midrash. And the uh, best known example of this is in text 5. In text 5, uh, we have Abraham is uh, minding the store in his father's uh, idol shop. And one day the father goes out to lunch and leaves uh, Abraham in charge. And while Abraham is there uh, without his father, he takes a baseball bat or whatever they used in, in, in those days uh, before baseball had been invented. And with this uh, club, he clubs uh, all these uh, icons except for the largest one and smashes them up. And then he puts the club in the hands of the uh, largest one and waits for his father to come back. So his father comes back, you know, carrying like the coffee and donuts and so forth, comes into the store and sees all his inventory except for one large icon smashed to pieces on the floor. So it says, when his father came back, he said, what have you done to them? He, Abraham, replied, why should I hide it from you? That's how he got from George Washington. A woman came with a plate of fine flour and asked me to offer it to them. A woman came and wanted to present a sacrifice to these icons, these gods. One said, I'm eating it first. One of the icons said, I'm eating it first. Another said, I'm eating it first. Uh, the biggest one then took the club and smashed them. Right, that's why they're all smashed. Because they were fighting uh, over who's going to get this offering. And uh, the one, the biggest one with the club, he survived. So then Abraham's father, Terach, answers. He says, he answered, why are you, uh, he said, why are you deceiving me? Do they know anything? Don't give me this bubba This is ridiculous. These, these, uh, uh, these icons can't uh, understand anything. They don't know anything. The icons are a piece of wood. They're a piece of china, whatever they're made out of. They, the, 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 uh, uh, don't tell me that they were arguing with each other and fighting with each other. Whereupon Abraham answered, Do your ears not hear what's coming out of your mouth? You just admitted they don't amount to anything. Right? So this is a, the school of thought of the apocalypse of Abraham. The, the father believed in them, except here you got the moment of revelation where Abraham on rational grounds is able to show his father, No, this doesn't make any sense. You just admitted yourself that they're simply material beings. They have no will, they have no intellect, they have no perception. They can't possibly act on their own. Why would you regard such a thing as divine? Okay. Again, reason and empirical demonstration is the basis for this claim. Uh, the claim uh, is uh, 
the non-God, non-divinity, uh, so to speak, of material things. Material things lack perception, mind, will, the capacity to act. They're limited by the materi- materi- <coughs> materiality, excuse me, and therefore cannot be divine. They can't be divine. They're material things. They're subject to all the uh, uh, insults and vulnerabilities of anything material, and therefore they're not divine. And this idea becomes very prominent in, in uh, Jewish folklore and uh, makes its way, interesting enough, into Islam. It's not scriptural in Judaism in the, in the literal sense. You don't find it in the Tanakh. You don't find it in the Hebrew Bible uh, or, or the uh, Old Testament or as the televangelists say, the Old Testament. Uh, you, uh, but uh, you do find it in the Muslim scripture. For example, look at text uh, 6. And we gave Abraham uh, his right judgment formally, for we knew him well. This is God speaking in the plural, uh, first person plural, the royal we. When he said to his father and his people, what are those statues to which you're devoted? They said, we found our fathers worshiping them. Hey, we don't know, it's just a tradition, right? I mean, Hagabotena, this is what we did, we don't know what it is, we just keep doing it. He said, indeed, you and your fathers have been in manifest error. They said, "Have you brought us the truth, or are you as one of the, uh, as one of, uh, are you one of those who jest?" In other words, uh, you Abraham, you have some sort of truth to give us. Or you're just some sort of joker, just trying to make fun of traditional ways of acting. He said, "No, your Lord is the Lord of the heavens and the earth, who created them both. As Creator, He's superior over the heavens and earth. He's superior over the world of uh, the material. And I bear witness to that. And by Allah, Allah just means God in Arabic." Jews, Christians, and Muslims who speak Arabic, that's just their word for God. It's not a different deity. Uh, I will show your idols my guile after you turn your backs. Uh, and uh, then he reduced them to pieces, except for their chief, except for the biggest one, so that they might turn to him. You can see the reflection of the story in the Midrash there. All but the biggest one he reduced uh, to pieces uh, uh, as a demonstration of how completely meaningless and helpless these Uh, these icons are. Okay. Now, underneath this notion of the aniconic worship, the the form of religion that has no icons, that does not have iconography, which is is typical of the religion of Israel and Judaism uh, throughout the centuries, but by no means universal or even, I think, the most common pattern in religions in the world. Underneath that, uh, there is a kind of rejection, you might say, of anthropomorphism of imagining God in human form. Uh, On the other hand, there is a kind of problem here. On the one hand, you cannot make a representation or a picture of God. You can't say what God looks like. When people say, oh, I don't believe in that Old Testament God that's uh, an old man with a long white beard. that's not God. I, that's not the Hebrew Bible God. It's an image people have in the popular culture of what the Old Testament has to say about God. But really, you find almost nothing like that in the uh, in the Bible. In Daniel 7, you see the Atik Yamin, the Ancient of Days, who's got this white hair. Uh, one one text, uh, many that really uh, don't have that sort of description. Uh, uh, but you've got a God who is described as having a mouth. Uh, lips, tongue, nose, hands, arms, sometimes wings, 
carries a sword. This is a god that you can visualize to some degree. You can some, to some degree visualize uh, somebody having those things, except for the sword, the person next to you has all those things. Uh, even the person next to you may even have a sword, but not on him or her at the moment. So uh, you might say that on one hand, the religion of Israel looks extremely anthropomorphic. In that sense, extremely primitive, in that it, it has this deity who, uh, who talks, who has a voice, who has ears, who speaks, or a god who's anthropopathic, a god who, in fact, uh, uh, feels uh, as a human might feel. God feels anger, God feels love. Whether it's anger or love, you may like one or hate the other, whatever it is, doesn't make a difference. It's still, uh, it's still anthropopathism, it's still uh, uh, human uh, feelings. Uh, uh, God imagined as having human feelings, just as God could have a human uh, shape. Now, in the Greek, uh, Greco-Roman world, especially in Greece at a certain point, this became very problematic. Uh, it became very problematic to, to think of the, the classic Homeric myths that had the status, you might say, of scripture or of revelation. Certainly they were normative classical texts that people cited authoritatively. And yet the gods, if you ever read the, the Iliad or the Odyssey or whatever, uh, it, they, those gods are not necessarily terribly honorable. They're chasing each, around, each other around, they're doing all kinds of sexual stuff. You might as well be watching primetime television. Uh, except the language is more elevated uh, in, in Homer uh, and fewer commercials. The, uh, uh, this is what you think God is like. You think God is like Zeus or Athena or Venus or whatever deity you want, Hera. That's you think God's like full of this kind of jealousy and this, these petty hatreds and this vindictiveness and, uh, and all the lovemaking and so forth. Uh, to a kind of, at a certain point, for whatever reason, this becomes very problematic, and the whole uh, um, train of tradition and thinking develops in in the, in the Greek or Roman world that wants to reclaim the idea of divinity, the idea of God, from this kind of primitive mythology to reread the myths as referring to higher philosophical truths. So. Uh, the earliest example of this that I know of, there may be earlier ones, is by this figure Xenophanes of Colophon, text 7. This is a man who lived in the 6th century BCE. This man who lived in Greece about the time of the Babylonian exile, soon after the Choban Bayatri shown after the destruction of the first temple in Israel. Not that he ever heard of the destruction of the first temple uh, in Israel. I'm sure he had no problem eating on Tisha B'Av. Uh, but Xenophanes uh, uh, of Colophon uh, is a monotheist but he's a monotheist who has a problem with anthropomorphism or you might say because he's a monotheist he has a problem with anthropomorphism and anthropopathism especially with anthropomorphism because he believes in the one unique God he has trouble accepting the descriptions that appear in the traditional mythology and these fragments is about these poetic fragments we don't know much about the man that's thinking but here, here are some of the poetic fragments in text 7 he says, but mortals suppose the gods are born, wear their own clothes, and have a voice and a body. Well, the God of Israel isn't born. He does have clothes. You want to see descriptions of his clothes on occasion. And he does have a voice. Does he have a body? He's got arms, hands, uh, uh, you know, mouth. Uh, 
next one. But if horses or oxen or lions had hands, or could draw with their hands and accomplish such works as men, horses would draw the figurines of gods as similar to horses, and of the sort which each of them had. If the horse could, just, could draw a picture, and he said, okay, horse, describe your, your god. You might, you might uh, uh, describe, you might, uh, uh, you know, get a, a philosopher among the horses, a theologian among the horses. We'll call him a Thomas Equinus. Uh, and you, you, you ask him to, uh, to uh, these people laugh, that means there's a learned group, you know. I, I yeah. thought somebody was no idea what is that. They don't, they don't get Aquinas or Equine either. Uh, but uh, this, is a, this is a good group. Uh, but uh, if horses could draw a picture of God, the God would look like a horse. So people describe God as having ears and nose and mouth and whatever, hands and sword and that. All right, uh, that's what that's people's image of, of it. And people do the same thing. Look at fragment 16 here in text 7. Ethiopians say that their gods are snub-nosed and black. Maybe look like them. Thracians that theirs are blue-eyed and red-haired. Look like them. Everybody imagines God looked like them. Now, I don't know that much about Xenophanes, but from what I've read, this doesn't exactly, I don't think most people think it means what it might first seem to mean. You might think this is a debunker of religion speaking, saying, you know what your God is? Your God is a projection out of yourself. You created the God in your own image. Right? Projectionists, like the 19th century German thinker Feuerbach and so forth. Uh, but from what I've read, uh, it sounds, uh, so a lot of people think it's actually the opposite that it's because of his rather transcendent notion of, of God, his rather intense monotheistic theology, that he doesn't think you can absolutize any <coughs> of these particular images of God. The Ethiopians had their image of the God who's black, and the Thracians had their image of God who's a redhead. If you absolutize either of those, you don't have the real God. The real absolute God transcends all those images. That's precisely why you want to relativize the different images of God. It's precisely why you, you don't want to have uh, anthropomorphism. Is because the anthropomorphism makes you lose sight of the transcendence of God over bodiliness, over materiality, over corporeality. Okay. Um, the, uh, now, you think about this for a minute. So you're a Jew that's come into this world that's increasingly dominated by this Greco-Roman thinking. From the time of the great victory of Alexander the Great over the Persians, 333 BCE, uh, he, uh, he, uh, the prestige culture, the militarily victorious culture, is that of the Greeks. They've been winning. Their culture's been winning. Uh, it puts tremendous pressure on the traditional Jewish culture in many different ways. Uh, uh, for example, the Greek institution of the gymnasium becomes prominent in the second century BCE, and some Jews want to go to the gymnasium. No Jew I ever knew, but some Jews want to go to the gymnasium. Gymnasium is the words from the Greek word gymnos, which means naked. And these men would run around naked in the gym, perfecting uh, their bodies, uh, so they become uh, uh, great athletes and so forth. Uh, I was never that good in athletics myself. Uh, are you, you laugh, you laugh. Uh, you can't judge by appearances. I, I actually was not, not a tremendous uh, athlete. And uh, what I basically did in gym class, in whatever uh, sport I was in, was try to avoid uh, 
uh, ever having my hands on the ball. And the reason is this, because I would have no idea what to do with the ball. I would have no idea what to do with it. And my classmates would be furious with me, my teammates, that I didn't know what to do with the ball. So the way to avoid that is just make sure I stay away from the, as far away from the ball as I possibly can. Now, what I always did, therefore, like, for example, baseball was the only sport I ever understood. They would put me in the outfield, and they had more than nine guys on the, on the, in the field, and they would put me in deep center field. There'd be a center fielder ahead of me, and I'd be back there about 600 feet back, right? And so, uh, and uh, I wasn't a bad fielder except for two things. One is, I, uh, three things. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't run, I couldn't catch the ball, and I couldn't throw the ball. Other than that, I was not bad as a, as a, as a fielder. So uh, I was a Jewish kid out there in the deep outfit. And here's what I used to do. I would, I would get a lot done during gym class because I would read my flashcards. I've always, since I was high school, except for Shabbos, I carried flashcards uh, with me. Would you ascertain, sir, that these are flashcards? Without fail. Yeah. There's, there's no trick to them, right? None. Yeah, yeah. What language do you think it is? Greek. Wrong. <laughs> now, what's that? It's Greek to me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> he just projects like those Ethiopians. Uh, so here's what I would do. I would sit there and, and, and do my flashcards in the outfield, right? Uh, because the chance that, that a ball would be hit to me was low. And it was hit to me that the center fielder ahead of me would run and was, believe it or not, even faster, more athlete than I was, and he would catch the thing. Well, I was out there one time, and I'm doing my Latin flashcards, right? And I'm sitting there doing this, you know, and uh, uh, the ball is out to me. And what I always would do is I would put the, the flashcards into my glove, and then I would go like this, <coughs> right? and pretend to be blinded by the sun. Now, never mind the fact that it was a very cloudy day, it was like raining or whatever, I always pretend to be blinded by the sun. And that way, uh, the, the ball would fall right in front of me. I never had to touch it. The other center field would run and scoop it up and throw it in, and nobody would be angry at me. But one time, I did this, I, I, exactly as I've done it before, many times, and I put my, my uh, flashcards into the glove, I started going like this, and next thing I know, the flashcards came out of the glove, and were all over the field like a confetti parade, right? It was like a confetti parade, like I felt like, like maybe Eisenhower being taken down Broadway or something, uh, this big confetti, except my, my teammates and the coach were not happy. Now, this, this may sound like a digression to some of you. How many actually think this is a digression? You're wrong again. Right. Two questions, you got them both wrong. This is not a digression. This is to illustrate the fact that the Jews have a problem with gym class. And, and the, the Jews, so, so to the extent to which the human body and statuary which is very much involved with the idealization of the human body, the extent to which that comes in, the Jews are already going to have a serious problem. But the Jews are going to have an additional problem if, if you consider the philosophical currents, such as that that goes way back as two, three hundred years earlier, to Xenophanes, and says there's a problem with the anthropomorphic description of God. There's a problem with that. Uh, the Jews have this very anthropomorphic book you think Homer's a problem, look at the Bible. God's there walking around in the Garden of Eden. It's a hot time of day and so on. This, this, is, this is going to be a big problem. He's talking, booming out his voice. And so People are seeing visions and so on. What is that all about? Uh, so you might have said, this is a major loss. This is another major loss for the Jews over against Greek civilization. Uh, to, to oversimplify it slightly. On the other hand, it seems to me the Jews had a comeback. And the Jewish comeback is, well, wait a minute here. You're the people that are always making statues of the gods. We don't do that. 
Because our God can't be imaged. We can't imagine. We can't make an image of our God. We can't visualize our God. Yes, our classical texts, yes, our foundational texts, our Torah does describe God in those anthropomorphic terms, but there are a lot of terms like that, and that's colorful language. We don't identify the God. We God, God actually looked like that. We would make a statue of somebody standing there who had lips and nose and, and a sword. Uh, we don't do that. Our, our religion forbids doing that. And as a matter of fact, our founder, our father and our founder, Abraham, he was the guy that saw through that. Long before you ever saw through it, we saw through it. He was the man who protested against imagery. He was the man who protested against the other gods that his father worshipped. He was the one who said you can't identify the deity with any material form. You can't make an image of the deity. He's the first one that, that saw that. The fact that our law forbids us to do that, that's just a memorialization of what our founder and father himself uh, discovered and practiced. And you see this sort of, sort of argument uh, uh, in text 8. Text 8 is by the uh, uh, Hellenistic Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria. He lived maybe something like, I don't know, 20 BCE to 40 CE. He lived through that big uh, Y0K problem they had. <laughs> Actually, he didn't because there never was a year zero. I remember. Uh, 31, one, uh, December 31st, uh, 1 BCE. It was followed by January 1st, 1 uh, CE. Uh, and uh, so, uh, but Philo is a Jewish philosopher living in Alexandria, writing in Greek. Not at all clearly knew Hebrew. Probably did not. I know some Hebrew words or some traditional etymologies. And here is how he talks about the journeys, the migrations of Abraham here in text eight. He says the migrations, as set forth by the literal text of the scriptures, are made by a man of wisdom. But according to the laws of allegory, no, don't mean it literally, it's by a virtue-loving soul in its search for the true God. For the Chaldeans, were especially Chaldeans being the Mesopotamians, being the people where Abraham started out, the Chaldeans or Babylonians were especially active in the elaboration of astrology, which in Greek is astronomia, because the difference between astrology and astronomy did not exist then, uh, and ascribed everything to the movements of the stars. They supposed that the course of the phenomena of the world is guided by influence contained in numbers and numerical proportions. A very major theme in, uh, in ancient Babylonian world, also the ancient Greek world, Pythagorean world. Thus they glorified visible existence. They, they glorified things that could be seen, leaving out of consideration the intelligible and the invisible, the pure idea that can't be seen, felt, but doesn't have any material, sensible realization. They concluded that the world itself was God, thus profanely likening the creator to the, the, the created to the creator, a classic definition <coughs> of idolatry. They thought the world itself was God, and it was controlled by the stars. It was controlled by numerical, mathematical proportions of the gods. He says, in this creed, Abraham had been reared. Abraham had grown up in a family that believed this. And for a long time remained a Chaldean. He remained a Babylonian. But the word Chaldean, actually in ancient Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, tends also to mean an astrologer. It's very interesting. They use that as a term for an astrologer. He, he began, he believed in astrology initially. Then, opening the soul's eye as though after a profound sleep, and beginning to see the pure beam instead of the deep darkness, 
he followed the ray and discerned what he had not beheld before, a charioteer and pilot presiding over the world. So here he presents Abraham as a man who grew up in this Babylonian world, this Mesopotamian world of astrology, thought there was nothing beyond this world and everything was governed by the stars and the numerical proportions, the mathematical formula, and, and so forth. And, uh, uh, and then he, uh, he, uh, he saw through it by some process that Philo presents as a kind of mystical illumination. He saw there was something beyond that, beyond what the senses could see. Uh, and uh, he's, he saw this charioteer, wonderful Greek image, charioteer and pilot presiding over the entire world. So the higher reading of the story of Abraham according to Philo is philosophical, but not in the manner of modern rationalism or naturalism with its various naturalistic and atheistic assumptions. The higher reading is philosophical in that it discloses the nature of the super sensible uh, deity, the intelligible deity. Uh, and it, it, it uh, reveals a creator who is active providentially or can be active providentially. And for reasons of comparison, I just noticed, I note here uh, Cicero de Natura Deorum. Cicero was a Roman uh, lawyer, philosopher, statesman, uh, uh, public uh, official, uh, author. Uh, and in text 9, his Stoic, in a book that means On the Nature of the Gods, his Stoic is presenting his, his reasons for believing in God, one God, his reasons for believing in God. He says, the most potent cause of the belief in the existence of God, he said, was the uniform motion and revolution of the heavens and the various groupings and ordered beauty of the sun, moon, and stars, the very sight of which was in itself enough to prove that these things are not the mere effect of chance. One is compelled to infer that these mighty world motions are regulated by some mind, menta. It's a little bit like intelligent design. You see an order in the astronomical bodies and you infer a mind, but the mind is not a creator here. The mind is the intelligence that's manifest in those movements of those mathematical proportions themselves. For Philo, it's a creator. What Philo sees is a creator who is sovereign over nature, not simply an intelligence that it, with, within nature. So you can see how in this environment, um, along with statuary, there's another form of idolatry. The form of idolatry in, in this case is uh, astrology. Specifically, the belief that material things govern human destiny exclusively. Material things. In modern times, we might say genes or social forces or economic forces. Materialists tend to be along those lines. Uh, here, it's, it's rather the effect of heavenly bodies and, and the mathematical proportions that they reveal. And when you get, let's go back to the Quran in text 10. In text 10, here you see this dimension of, of idolatry coming out again. In this, in this case, we have young Abraham uh, remonstrating with his father. In this case, for reasons I don't know, he's, his name is Azar in the Quran. And he says this in text 10. Uh, when Abraham said to his father Azar, do you take idols for gods? I see you and your people are manifest error. Thus we show Abraham the kingdom of the heavens and earth that he might be one of those possessed of certainty. And when the night fell, he, Abraham, saw a star. So he said, this is my Lord. But when it said, he says, I do not like those that set. That star, right, it's on the way down, right? So that's not God. Uh, then when he saw the moon rising, he said, this is my Lord. But when it said, he said, if my Lord does not guide me rightly, I will be one of those erring people. Uh, guess what? The moon, you don't see it in the daytime. That's not God. 
Then when he saw the sun rising, he said, This is my Lord, this is larger. Now we're on to something. But when it said, he said, Oh, my people, I am innocent of what you associate with God. I don't believe any of those things are God. Those heavenly bodies really aren't God. For all their beauty and all the proportion and so forth they may have, they're really not, not God. I turn my face towards him who fashioned the heavens and the earth as an upright man, and I am not one of the polytheists. I'm a radical uh, 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 monarchist. Now this then moves in two different directions in the Jewish tradition and Islamic tradition too, but in the Jewish tradition specifically it moves in two different directions. One is what I would call, for lack of a better word, Maimonidean. Uh, that is to say, the notion that Rambam, that Maimonides has, of the total <coughs> incorporeality of the deity. So that all the biblical language of God seeing, hearing, speaking, all of this has to be taken very, very philosophically. So, so, for example, if it says God, someone saw God, what that means to Maimonides is they had an intellectual grasp of the idea of divinity. It's purely intellectual. There's no actual uh, lived, immediate, sensual encounter with God in Maimonides. A radical, incorporeal, incorporeal and utterly invisible deity uh, showing his transcendence over matter uh, excuse me, uh, 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 utterly invisible deity, I, and it's idolatrous in Maimonides' view to take any of that anthropomorphic language literally. That's a sign of a fool, of an uh, unphilosophical person, and a person who is uh, uh, simply doesn't uh, understand the nature of God. That's one position that's very well known, and many people think that's the only Jewish position. But there's another position that goes like this. The variety of visible manifestations of God shows his transcendence over matter. But not that he's adverse to matter. He's not adverse to matter. He's not adverse to bodiliness. He has a multitude of bodily manifestations showing his sovereignty over those manifestations. His, his sovereignty over corporeality, over bodiliness. He's not limited to any one. He can appear in any number of those. And the best example of that is from the Shira Kavod, a poem traditionally uh, sung at the end of Sabbath and, and festival uh, morning services, and attributed to Yehuda HaChasid, Yehuda of Regensburg, uh, died in 1217, or maybe to his father, uh, Shmuel. And here in text 11, I used Rabbi Jonathan Sachs' Sidur just because I had it handy to, to Xerox. Uh, he tries to capture, you know, this is the poem usually known as Anim's Miros, uh, and in, in, especially in Orthodox synagogues, it tends to be sung at the end of the service by a seven or eight year old boy uh, in a, what I regard as a ridiculous sing song. And now, you might say, well, that desecrates a beautiful song, but not in the eyes of the congregation because they're all talking anyway. <laughs> who, is, who is actually listening? Who, who is ever paying attention to the, to the theological content of Anim's Mirrors? Nobody, right? Except me. Uh, so, the, uh, so what Rabbi Sachs has tried to do in text 11 is to capture the sing-song quality with English rhymes. Uh, not terribly successfully. He says, uh, I'm just here's an example. Recounting your grandeur and your glory of your deeds, they, the prophets, told the story. They depicted you, they depicted you, though not as you are. They did depict you, they did present pictures of you, but not as you are, but as you do, your acts, your power. They represented you in many visions, 
through them all you are one without divisions. Nice rhyme. Doesn't exactly, it sort of gets the idea of the Hebrew, not terribly, literally. Well, let's take a look at that last uh, verse there. They made parables about you through many different visions, or in an abundance of visions. But you are one through all the images. Not that you don't have an image. They made images. Those images are real. Take those images seriously. But you're the same God despite the plurality of the images. Uh, uh, this is a rather different view from the Maimonidean view. This says don't dispense with that, that uh, language. Uh, just recognize that this is how God chooses to communicate himself in anthropomorphic form through the senses since we really don't have an access to God except through our senses. Don't literalize any one image of God so much so you build a statue and say, well, this is God. But recognize God is, is superior to uh, all those images. And this is the view that's taken up in turn, this gets us to our last text, uh, by the great uh, Jewish philosopher Franz Rosenzweig, who lived from 1886 to 1929. And here is what he says on this subject of anthropomorphism. He says, the assumption that the biblical anthropomorphisms make is none other than the double one that the Bible commonly makes, namely that God is capable of what he wills and the creature is capable of what he should be. Biblical anthropomorphisms are the single protection against the backsliding into polytheism, which is nothing but consolidation of a genuine present revelation of the real God to a lasting image of God, precisely by this means, resisting the ever new will of God's revelation. That's very hard to understand. I read it in German and found it even harder to understand. Uh, uh, but the notion is this, that uh, God genuinely encounters the Jewish people in those images, in those visions. Don't, don't say those visions are just allegories of philosophy. It's the living, personal God revealing himself. But as soon as you take one of those revelations, one of those images of God, one of those as you'll know, one of those many uh, visions, and you literalize it by trying to make a statue and say, ah, oh, this is God, then you're resisting the new revelation of God, God's freedom uh, uh, and sovereignty over, uh, over material, over the created world, as ability to appear in a wide variety of images. Not image-less, but sovereign over images, a God of many images, therefore no image, no one image to be made of him, because no one could say what he looks like. In, in uh, the Shira Kavod and the Animus Mirror, it says sometimes God appears as an old man with a seva with white hair, Sometimes he appears as a young warrior uh, with a shakarut, with, uh, with black hair. Uh, uh, the, instead of attempting to move away from the images, celebrate the variety of the images as giving you a sense of the transcendence of God. So when Rosenzweig reads Xenophanes, our Greek uh, uh, philosopher, he says Xenophanes is not making fun of the horses or the Ethiopians or the Thracians with their gods that look like them. He's saying recognize the danger of literalizing any apparition of God. God appears in different forms of different people. Uh, Rosenzweig has a great uh, line there in Germany. He says, Gott spricht alle Sprachen. God speaks all languages. That is to say, it's not God speaks no language. It's God speaks all languages. And, and all these images convey something of the reality of God. 
but no one of them can be absolutized. When you absolutize it, you resist the ever new will of God's revelation. In the Jewish tradition, that insistence on the ever new uh, 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 will of God's revelation and on the, uh, the uh, transcendence of, of the one God over the created order, uh, over the material world, is associated with Abraham, who in the process moves from, from being only a father, he never ceases to be the father, but he, he moves from being only the father to being the father and the founder of a certain theology, a certain philosophy, a certain worldview in which the transcendent God uh, is sovereign over nature and all material things. Thank you. I'll be willing to entertain questions. I won't answer them. <laughs> but I'm happy to enter. I would like to entertain questions. Yes, sir. I'd be curious uh, what's your opinion uh, talking about uh, visual images and variety. Um, I'm very into Shira Shira. I've heard, I've studied Shira Shira with this liberal, liberal interpretation. Have you seen the movie? <laughs> I didn't see the movie. I didn't either. But, uh, but I, mean, I, I appreciate the, the, the literal translation and I also appreciate the allegorical, I think they both have made. I'm just wondering if you, if you, if you, if you if you take the totality from both them also, or, or yeah, I'm sorry, if I do what? I, I didn't know. Like, uh, just as you see many different images uh, as being equally yeah. valid, would you also see the yeah. I think so. Uh, the Song of Songs, at the base level of it, seems to be a couple of young people deeply in love in a very erotic, bodily way with each other. Uh, beautiful love poems. Uh, it's been taken in Jewish tradition as uh, God's love to the Jewish people. Uh, and that's what the young man is referring to as the allegorical reading. As a kind of technical point, I don't like the word allegorical, but that's the one everyone uses for it. Because I think what it, what it actually does is not saying that the male lover is virtue and the female lover is truth. It's not allegorizing in that philosophical vertical way. It's saying at what moment in the romance of God and the Jewish people was this song, this line uttered? Was it uttered at, to Abraham? Was it uttered at the sea? Was it uttered at Sinai? Was it uttered when the temple was destroyed? Was it, will it be uttered when the temple is rebuilt? It's, a, it's more typologically through a narrative. There's who are these anonymous speakers and where in the national story would they be saying these things? Uh, I, I think that it would be very hard to understand the nature of the love of God in, in Judaism, in, in rabbinic Judaism. It would be very hard to understand the nature of the love of God if you, didn't under, if you didn't respect the passion of the Song of Songs, so you could say, well, they, by making it God's love for Israel, you've de-eroticized it. Another way of looking at it is to say, uh, you've eroticized the relationship of God and Israel. Right? You've eroticized the, 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 love of, uh, the relationship of God and Israel by making that a primary lens, Song of Songs a primary lens for describing the God-Israel relationship. So I think my answer to your question is yes. <laughs> well, this may segue into what the young man said. Um, in the Zohar, the God is totally physical. I mean, it goes from one physical description to another, as in Hasidism, and in the RE, it's like super, li super new age, what we know about the body, 
And as far as my memory, I, I could be wrong, but I believe that I, in my memories, Abraham was taught the entire body as well before the RA. In Kabbalah. Yeah. So I was yeah. just wondering why did you interject any of those? Oh, well, that's easy to answer. Ignorance. Oh, well, <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no, uh, you're absolutely right that, that in the Zohar, it, it's, it's multi, multi, it's kaleidoscopic, uh, psychedelically imagistic. On the other hand, you... It's physical. You, but you said it goes from one to the other. What were you aligning there a little bit? If it were really physical, it couldn't go from one to the other. It's multiple physical. Yeah, which is not like anything we know as a physical. That's the two-sidedness of it. You see what I'm saying? In other words, the multiply physical, this is Rosen's five point, the multiply physical, or the, the point in Shere Kavod, in Anim Zmiro, the multiply physical is not the physical in the sense of which we normally think of it. We're stuck with this, this one body and it isn't getting any younger. Well, it's, 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 it's not shape-shifting, is what he's saying. Shape-shifting or, 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 or a, a multiple, uh, multiple visions or revelations of some sort of... Uh, invisible and inconceivable reality whose invisibility is conveyed through a multitude of visual images. And then you're expecting someone. I know that most people are not going to say, "Oh, like let's look at Rishi and say, like I'm sure that that, that these sources are not saying, let's look at Rishi and say, so maybe we can do the same." Um, but we have that idea that like we are created in the image of God. So how do we relate to this? This is a big, big question you're getting at, and I. I'm not terribly capable of answering it. I'd have to take a long time to yeah. stumble around towards it. It's interesting that the description of the creation of humanity there in Genesis 1, 26-28 is very much in the language of iconography with words like Selim and Demut. Those are the things you're not supposed to make of God, but nonetheless, uh, these people are made in the Selim Elohim, in the image of God. Right? Let, 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 let us make man in our image and after our Demut. You know, there's, there's something there's something to this there's something to the notion at least in the source that's responsible for that text human beings are thought of as the as living animated icons and uh, a lot more could be said about that so it's a very profound and difficult point there's questions over here yeah, yeah sure um, yeah you're, you're, you're talking about Rosenzweig just brought me to the, to, the not, to the not often recognized affinity between Hinduism and, and Judaism, actually, um, except, that, except that in Hinduism, like creating physic, physical representations of the visions is not prohibited. But where that, puts me, where that brings me is to, your, is, to your, is to your early on, you mentioned something about the relative superficial, superficiality of, of Second Temple and perhaps rabbinic depictions of idolatry in their in their referencing the materiality, whereas in the in the ancient traditions and in the magical tradition, as it extended past the ancient times, the the icons are just are just essentially kalim, they're just vessels in which spirits dwell, and you don't see that in the Jewish in the ancient Jewish texts about idolatry. 
Yeah. So I, what do you what how how do you account for that a, in the in the Jewish yeah, text? Yeah, these are all very good uh, uh, questions. Uh, for whatever reason, it became uh, very useful to the prophets of Israel, for whatever social, whatever reason, to differentiate themselves from peoples around them uh, and to uphold their own national tradition by identifying the other deities with their icons and saying they aren't just vessels, they aren't kingly, they aren't vessels, they have no spiritual reality, they have no story, they have no narrative, they have nothing, they're just a piece of rock or wood. And then, of course, the worshiper, the member of the other religion with which you're in competition, becomes an idiot because he can't see through a piece of rock or wood, which is what the way uh, uh, Abraham's father is presented in the text we've been we've been looking at here. I think it's rhetorically useful. I actually, I, I don't know the extent to which, for example, in Isaiah 44, which is the classic example of this, Isaiah 44, where the guy cuts down a tree. And he, half of it he throws in the oven and he says, ah, now I feel warm. The other half he makes into a god and he bows down and says, save me for you are my god. I don't know to what extent the author of that actually thinks the people he's satirizing believe that. Satire works by reduction and caricature. And when two things are in competition, it's useful to them to present the other one as completely ridiculous. But whether they actually, whether, that they, whether they, as Jehezko as Kaufman thought, that they, the religion of Israel is so unique they can't even understand the so-called idolatry, that's what he tends to think. I tend to think that there's a rhetorical use in pretending not to understand it. But, that's, but your view is problematic if the audience becomes sophisticated. Which, uh, wait, and they, it overthrows those texts. Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm not so sure. <laughs> but, I mean, I mean, the uh, it becomes. Uh, I don't know to what extent the, any audience was persuaded by those descriptions. Uh, we just don't know the we don't know the we don't know the results of those prophetic preachings. Then Abraham is then reconceived in the language of those prophetic polemics. Yes, My question is about two-dimensional versus three-dimensional. Uh, could a, an argument be made that uh, in periods when uh, two-dimensional representation that had been forbidden in other times, perhaps it had been permitted because the two-dimensional text itself, as you pointed out, had made all these references to uh, uh, body parts of God, but to actually make three-dimensional forms, you know, to actually make statues, yeah. that would be, you know, beyond the pale. Is, is there any, any basis I don't, for that? I don't know the evidence they were making two-dimensional and then only later three-dimensional. Figurines are very, very early. But two-dimensional in art? Yeah. That being two-dimensional, would that, like have, on a cave could that have been permit, permitted because of the fact as that there I, was so much anthropomorphism in the, as uh, I, in the text? As I read the Decalogue, it forbids that. It forbids things, pictures of anything. Two and yet there have been periods when... Yeah. Oh, I, I'm not saying... I'm not saying... One thing I'm, I'm never saying about the Jewish people is that they actually practice what the Torah says. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that, that what people are doing is one thing. I mean, they're making pictures in, in synagogues and Dury Europus in the third century in the common era. People making pictures and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but what they understand that to be is a whole... whole and even you would have Nazis tied. Yeah, people, sure, yeah. Okay, thank you. Sure. Thank you. Thank you.